you want to give everybody online, I know um, it's, it, I, I tallied this up last year. I don't know what it is now. But uh, if everybody that, in, let's say, encountered this, um, partake, partook, partaked, partook, what's the right word of that? Partook, partook of this on a podcast or live stream or all that stuff, um, our yearly budget would be over tripled if those people gave not just a tithe, I mean, if they just gave like a percentage of a tithe. And so I want to encourage you, if you're watching this, if you're feeding off of this, um, I think there, there is a responsibility to give as a Thanksgiving offering for what you're eating from. So I heard a, a pastor say one time, you wouldn't go eat at Ruth's Chris and then go pay at McDonald's. So, um, so anyway, I like that. That wasn't me. I wish it was. It's way better than something I got to say. But anyway, okay, okay. Here we go. I'm going to need your minds. I'm going to need your hearts. I'm going to need you being awake today. So if you need coffee, it's back there, and I'm going to pull this over here. Okay, who is God? Who is God? Um, let me read what I've been writing, and then we'll, we'll kind of we'll jump in. For centuries, theologians, scholars, philosophers, etc., have attempted the impossible, which is to try and put the indescribability of God into finite words. It is not an easy task. It will inevitably fall short. However, today I want to give my thoughts on the matter and offer yet another contribution to the endless discovery of God. So first, let me remind you of something that we speak on a lot here. Okay? And I'm going to use some language that I think have been misused in the past, so this might hit you weird, but I'm going to explain it. Um, and before I get into this, number one, two, I... Uh, when we talk about who is God, what I don't want to do today is leave you with all the answers of who God is. That I can't do that. I can't do that in a sermon. I can't do that in 10 years of sermons. What I want to do is give you some uh, glasses to take with you into the secret place in your discovery of who God is. See what I'm saying? So what I want to do today is adjust your vision. I don't want to give you all the answers. So, um, so anyway, with that in mind, let me remind you of something that we speak on a lot here. I personally operate in more of a, a philosophy, study of how you think anointing, than a theology, which is the study of God anointing. That's, that's just how I'm, I'm wired. That's how I operate. All of our issues... All of our issues, particularly in the, in the rigid West that we have, all of them flow not from a lack of theological study, okay? Theology, study of God. So all of our issues do not flow from a lack of study in God. They flow from a lack of how we think being flexible to shift to the new views of the face that God gives us every generation. Did I say that right? Well, none of y'all know because you haven't been in my notes. That's okay. The, the, the issues that we have is not a lack of studying God. It's a lack of flexibility by way of how we think when we study God. We bring preconceived ideas of who we think God should be like, whether that be because of how you were raised or because of what you saw on a TV show or whatever. We bring ideas of what we think God should be like into the place of studying God. So when he shows up in any kind of way, with any kind of grace, we force that to fit within how we think, rather, this is all review, but I need this, rather than flexing how we think or flexing our wineskin to submit to the wine. You see what I'm saying? Jesus said if you pour new wine into an old wineskin, it would burst and the wine would be wasted, right? 
So he pours new wine into a new wineskin. Why? Because a new wineskin has been baptized in oil, and in in being baptized in oil, it gives it a flexibility to stretch and move based on the maturity of the new wine. Okay. In other words, it's not that we've been lazy in studying God. Things like Calvinism, and I'm not going to knock anything today, but... Things like Calvinism, Reformed thinking, are nothing but a study of God. That's all, that's all it is, is a study of God. It's that we have failed to do the only thing that gives us legal permission to study God at all, which is repent. Repentance is not a theological issue. Repentance is a philosophical issue. Now, again, when I use that language, repentance is not a study of God issue. Repentance is a way we think issue. Okay, how do you prove that? The word metanoio or metanoia, maybe you've heard that more, uh, more frequently. Um, same word. It means to repent. It's how it's translated in your Bible. And if you break the word down, metanoio, meta means to change, okay? And noio means to think. Metanoia, meta means to change, noia means how you think. So to change how you think is metanoia. That's what the word repentance means. Metanoia, to change your thinking. A lot of times we've heard this as change your direction. And I've taught this before, but just to go back, because this is what we're doing today. Might as well just put this out of the way. What we're doing today is we're studying God. But we can't study God if we bring how we think and the box of how we think into the study of God, right? Okay, amen. So repentance, metanoia, is sure to change how you change your direction. So let me give you like this. If you're going a thousand miles an hour down the southbound lane of the interstate, you're breaking the law right? Okay. If you then get off of the exit, you slow down, you get back onto the northbound lane, and you're still going a thousand miles an hour, you've changed your direction, but you're still breaking the law. It was never about what direction you're going. It was always about the mindset of the one driving faster than they're supposed to be driving. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a really simple example. So instead of the cop pulling over the car and saying, you're going in the wrong direction, the cop pulls over the car and says, you're going too fast. I don't care what direction you're going. See what I'm saying? So when we say metanoia is a change in direction, the problem is if we don't change our direction by first, by way of how we think, then all we're going to do is we're going to change our direction and go this way with the same mindset that put us on the wrong path in the first place before we changed how we go. So Jesus comes and John comes, the Baptist, preaching a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, why on earth would they be preaching that? Because Jesus was about to come and in, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says things like this. He says, Moses said to not murder. Amen. Praise the Lord, brother. That's in the law. That's in the Bible. Thou shalt not murder. Y'all agree? It's in the Bible. Jesus walks up. Moses said you shouldn't murder. But I say you shouldn't be angry. 
We never, have you ever thought about this? So, Jesus is looking at the crowd of Pharisees and religious people. He's looking at them, and he's saying, what you have learned by way of Moses stops extremely short from what Moses should have been showing you. If you fix the anger, let me say it like this. You can force, your, you can force yourself to not murder somebody and still be mad at them. I do it all the time. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You can, you can force yourself to not murder somebody and still be mad and still hate their guts. But you cannot love someone and murder them. So Jesus is saying, you operate by way of works. The reason you don't commit adultery is because the law told you don't commit adultery. I've come to introduce an intimacy that you are so fascinated with, adultery will never cross your mind. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you think I've come to set aside the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets, you're mistaken. I have come to fulfill and bring to perfection all that has been written. Indeed, I assure you, as long as heaven and earth endure, not even the small, I want you to hear this, I want you to hear this, not even the smallest detail of the law will be done away with until its purpose is complete. My question, to you, I'm not even teaching on this, this is, just, this is free. My question to you is, when was the law's purpose complete? If you've ever read anything from Paul, you know the answer to this. All right, let me just help you a little bit. I have come to complete and bring to perfection all that has been written. The law will not be done away with until its purpose is complete. Back up two sentences. I've come to complete it. We still live by way of a religious thinking that is law and order and action and morality. Jesus came to introduce a kingdom that first goes by way of how you think. And if you can shift how you think, then everything that you do will flow from a right way of thinking right? So Jesus came to fix identity. All the law did was force you to be something that you actually were not. All the law introduced to you was a mask. Jesus came to tear the mask off and make you who you really are. We cannot truly know God, which is theology, unless we are willing to submit our way of thinking to what we know and discover about God. The reason I start here is in order for us to fully discover a God that is unlike and better, the God of typical Western evangelical Christianity, we will have to change how we think of God in terms of Western evangelical Christianity. The next revival will not be a theological renaissance. It will be a philosophical renaissance. We don't need a new view of God. We need to see correctly the view of God that we've always had. This in mind, see what I did there? This in mind, I'm a dad. This in mind, I'm going to ask you the question, who is God? So let me start with the early church fathers. St. Gregory 
of Nazion, Nazianzus, excuse me, I'm, I pronounce that wrong every time I talk about him. St. Gregory, around 389 AD, he first used the Greek word perichorio, perichorio, okay? St. Gregory is considered one of the most prominent fathers that impacted early Trinitarian theology, God existing in Father, Son, and Spirit. The first major father to teach on the theology of the Trinity was Origen. But perichorio, this word that St. Gregory used, was the term that he used to describe the relationship between the Son and humanity. This is really interesting. The first time we see this word, perichorio, the first time we have history of this word is when Gregory of Nazianzus is teaching on the relationship between the Son and humanity. Okay? But later on, later on, and let me back up, the word perichorio is a mutual indwelling, or more literally, this is literally what it means, interpenetration. It is a mutual indwelling. It's he in me and I in him, and he in me and I in him. Y'all good? Okay, so this is the word that's used. Later on, the early church fathers coined the word that we all know a lot, which comes from the idea of perichoria, which is perichoresis, to describe the relationship with the Trinity. Okay, God is three in one, yet is one in three. God is completely one, yet somehow without losing individuality. Perichoresis is broken down. Peri, which means around, and choreo, which means to go or come. It's where we get the English word choreography. So when the early church fathers around 700 AD are coming up with how do we describe God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they come up with this word taken from Gregory, and they say, here's how we're going to describe it. It is a never-ending circle dance. If I'm going to describe the Trinity, I'm going to just be honest with you, that's probably not what I'm coming up with. I'm coming up with holy, I'm coming up with something, but a, cir- peri- a circle dance? It's really interesting. Remember, though, the idea of, the, of perichoresis came from Gregory's idea of Jesus and humanity existing in perichorio. So when Gregory says, this is the relationship that Jesus shares with humanity, he comes up with perichorio. It is a circle dance. And the early church fathers take that idea and they say, wait a minute. It's not just the relationship with Jesus and humanity that operates in this. It's the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit that operates in this. This, I mean, this is, this is massive. This is massive, okay? Perichoresis is around you go and come. That's the word the early church fathers coined to explain that relationship. St. Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century, in his sermon on the Song of Songs, he said this about the relationship of God. Hear this. He said this. If, as is properly understood, the Father is who kisses, the Son is he who is kissed, then it cannot be wrong to see in the kiss the Holy Spirit 
For he is the imperishable peace of the Father and the Son, their unshakable bond, their undivided love, their indivisible unity. Amazing. Man, I wish we heard teaching like that today. All we hear today is, is how you're called to be famous. You know what I'm saying? And these people are giving their lives to try to tell people that God exists in a relationship that you're invited into that is not a rigid, by-the-rules relationship. It is a self-giving circle dance of joy that never ends and never started. It never had a beginning, and it doesn't have an ending. For eternity past and eternity future, God is existing in a dance of love. And Gregory starts the conversation by saying, Jesus and you exist in a circle dance of love. Okay, this is big. This is big. God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. Yet, the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. In simplest terms, God is what it is like to be completely united as one without losing and even honoring the individual expression of each part of the one. I know this is a lot. I know this is a lot. It's important to honor the individual expressions of God while never losing or taking for granted the oneness of those expressions. Do you... Do you hear two things? Do you hear um, marriage in this? And then do you hear the relationship of the church? How is the church described in the New Testament? One body that Christ is the head of. Not a thousand bodies, one body. So you and I in in Dream Church is not one body and the church across the street one body and the church over there one body. We're all in one body playing different parts. You see what I'm saying? Right, And so because, where we are in America, because a lot of the different parts aren't playing their part, there are certain hands and foots that are having to be hearts and brains and skeletons and wrists and elbows because nobody else is doing the part that they're designed to be. Because we're too focused on growing our mega ministries and getting rich than we are on introducing people to a perichoresis that you were designed for. I'm I'm, I'm really feeling this. Okay. So, y'all good? Y'all good? Y'all okay if I teach like this? Because I'm going to do it anyway. So, here we go. The question to start with, that I want to start with, is this. And it's going to seem very random, but it'll make sense in a second. Here's the question I want to start with if you're taking notes. I'm going to ask you this. Is there a space that contains God, or... Does God define all space within himself? You mess with a little bit? Here's the question. I want you to think about this really hard. Is there a space that contains God? Or does God define and contain all space within himself? In other words... Before creation, did God exist in a place and then create the cosmos in an empty space that he did not fill? Or did God fill all space before creation, thus creating within himself? 
me give you a little example. All right. <clears throat> we believe, m- most of us believe, we don't know we believe this, but this is what we believe, that this is God, and they're having their little dance in eternity past, spinning around, dancing, doing their whole thing. And then God decides, you know what? We're going to create. So over here, in this void, comes us and then creation. This is what we believe. Most of us, typically. We believe, and I know we believe this because we are all a result of the Enlightenment period in the West. In the 18th century, the Enlightenment period was where, all, where America leading the way, but the West pushed God and all of his world and everything he wants to do into a distant, outer space, way away place so that we could run the world like we think, but we're going to keep grace, hope, and love, and joy, and peace. We're going to keep all the morals. We're going to keep all the good stuff, but we're going to push the prophetic stuff and the miracles and the angel stuff and the resurrection stuff. We're going to push that into outer space. This is where Thomas Jefferson comes out with his Jefferson Bible, which thank God you can't find anymore. Praise God. This is where Thomas Jefferson comes out with his Bible. Jefferson removes the resurrection. He removes every angelic encounter. He removes all the prophetic words. He removes anything that has to do with God speaking to us, and he leaves the peace and the hope and the joy and the love, and they release that Bible in the Enlightenment period, right? So you shove God into outer space. We still think like this. This is how we think. And in order to think like that, I need you to see this, You've got to believe that there was a time in eternity past where God was contained in a material space. What space in eternity past contained the infinite God? Chris Valentin says it like this, and I'm not going to answer this because, you know. Chris Valentin at Bethel says it like this. Does God exist within heaven or does heaven exist within God? Yes. So, this, just to help you out, is wrong. And I'm going to read this. This is what it was. This is space. You ready? You ready? And God created us. God had to make space within the circle dance of space that he filled for us to fit within that circle dance. Prove it. Okay. Is this too deep? Some of y'all are like, yes, yes it is. Okay. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus, if you didn't know that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Prostontheon is the Greek. And it is not the Word was with God as in he was hanging out with God. The word pros is face to face. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with God, and the word was God. He was face to face with God in the beginning. Check this out. Through him, all things were made without or apart from him. Nothing was made that has been made. 
depending on your Bible, if you have like a New King James, I think it says this, or even the King James or whatever, um, ESV might even say this. I don't know. Does ESV say apart from him, nothing was made that has been made in first? Yeah, okay. So I'm reading the NIV, and the NIV royally missed it here. What John is saying is, in the beginning was the Word. He was face-to-face with God. All things were created through him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, apart from God, nothing exists because everything was made through God. This is huge. Amen. Now, apart from him, nothing was made. Here, Paul picks up on this language later on. If this is review for you, amazing. Consider yourself reviewed. Paul picks up on this language later on, and this is what Paul says. Paul takes it a step further. He says this, The Son is the image, Colossians 1, you don't have to turn there, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn of all creation. In Him, in Him, say in. In Him, all things were created. Things in heaven, on earth, visible. There's your answer to the question. Does God exist in heaven or does heaven exist in God? Things, all things were created in him, things in heaven, there you go, and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things that have been created, they've been created through him and for him. Paul takes it a step further and says, John, I like the way you think. I'm going to take it a little further, even though Paul's gospel was probably written maybe before the book of John was written. Either way, for the sake of our argument. Paul is picking up on the through language, and he says, no, no, no. Not only were all things made through him, all things were made in, through, and for him. So Paul is saying, I'm not just going to tell you how everything came to be and where it was located. I'm going to tell you the purpose of all things, which is for him. All things in, through, and for him. Let me keep reading. Let me finish this out. He is before all things, and in him, in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, which is the church, you and I, and everybody else in the, in the family. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything, everything, in everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything, he might have the supremacy. And the word might there is not, oh, he might. That's not what the word there is saying. It's, say, it's emphatic. So that in everything, he will have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That, that, is, that is a rock of a verse. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the Son. In the Son was Father, Son, and Spirit at one with man. In the Son. On the cross. No, 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 not today. Okay. I'm messing with you a little bit longer. I want you to take that verse, though, and when you go home, we're about to come on Easter, I want you to look at the cross, and here's what I want you to think. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I want you to look at the cross and see the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that's massive. That is massive. 
that'll cause you to that'll cause you to sift a lot of things just right there. Verse 20. And through him, who's him? Jesus, through him to reconcile to himself, God, all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Through him reconciling all things to himself. Man, man, man. Verse 21, last verse. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds as a result of or as shown by your evil behavior. Some of your Bibles say because of. That's not the right Greek translation. Most of your Bibles, if they're a good translation, will say um, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind as shown by your evil behavior. All right, this is so good. This is so good. So let me... um, let me, let me teach you something real quick. Let me teach you something real quick, and then I got one more point. I just lied. I just lied. I'm, I don't have one more point. I got a couple more. Um, that was a lie. Lord, forgive me. Um, just trying to make y'all feel a little bit better. So um, let me teach you something real quick. Y'all good? Okay. Because I can either, I can, listen, I can teach you what you want to know about God, or I can teach you what is actually truth about God. I, you know what I'm saying? I can teach you what you think you want to know about God, which is what most of y'all have been taught your whole life. Or I could teach you what is true about God. I'm going to teach you what is true about God. So, so, so as I teach you what's true about God, here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to either have to say, you know what? That's true about God and let your philosophy begin to shift. Or you can say, My philo- the way I think is rock solid and you start tinkering with how you see God. One of those is heresy. Okay, so, <laughs> you ready? I just like to slide that in there. Okay. You ready? So this is what's true about God. God exists in this. I just erased it. I should have left it up here because I want to edit it. But this is God. This is us. What happened, and by the way, the Bible does not use the language of the fall. The subtitle in Genesis that was translated by um, some Baptist and Presbyterian people say the fall. So what happened when we lost our minds in the garden and we ate of something that we were not designed for? What happened? Here's what we believe. We believe that when we ate of what we were not designed for, it moved us and separated us from God. The problem is, according to Paul, according to John, according to the New Testament, and even according to the Old Testament, that is not possible unless there is a space that exists outside of God. What Paul says is, is all things were made in, through, and for him, in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through and for him. Paul is saying, if you cannot find it in God, it's not real. If you cannot find it in God, it by definition doesn't exist. God gives definition to everything. God life gives definition to everything. So when we were raised from the dirt as a bunch of clumps, right, we didn't exist until the breath of God entered our body. This is why St. Athanasius says, who is uh, the Apostle John's spiritual grandson, great-grandson, 
This is why St. Athanasius says this. He says, if God's breath is life and God's grace decree over our lives that exists before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians 1.4, if that's real, what happened when we fell? I hate that language. I'm trying to figure out a better way of saying that, but so you know what I'm talking about. What happened? This isn't the art. This isn't even what we're talking about. See, we'll spend years teaching people that they're separated because of their sin and blah, 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 and that everything that they've done has moved them away from God and they're enemies from God. That's not, what this, that's not even an argument. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about you being away from God and Jesus coming to bring you close. That's not what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's talking about you being in that circle, you taking a bite of fruit, and though you exist in the circle, you thinking that you are now outside of the circle when you're really not. So Jesus came with a message that said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We said that repentance is changing your morality and going a different way so that you can earn your way back into the spin that you were designed for. That's not repentance. Repentance is is you getting back in your right mind that this is a lie and doesn't exist and that you're actually right there in the middle where you were before you ever had a choice to eat of a bite of a piece of fruit. Is it okay if I preach a little bit today? Be careful. Be careful. All right, John 14. Let me read this. Let me read this. What time is it? Lord, help me. John John 14. Verse uh, 15. Nope. Let me start at verse 16. He says, uh, I'll start at verse 15 just to make the sentence complete, paragraph complete. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world, listen, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Jesus is, is very specific in this language. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. The word know there is an intimate, intimate knowledge. It's the word Mary used when she told Gabriel, how can this be? I've never known a man. Same word. But you will know him. Same word. For he lives. This is in John 14, just by the way, talking about the Holy Spirit. But you will know him for he lives with you or in you and is in you. For he lives with you and is in you. Some, if you have an NIV, it says, and will be in you. The actual Greek does not have will be, it has is. So, the, the spirit of truth, the world can't accept him because it neither knows him nor sees him, but you will know him for he lives with you and in you. This is John 14. I just want to make this very clear. This is John 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Very interesting. Why? Because I live, you also will live. And this is the verse I want to get to. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. Perichoresis. 
mutual indwelling. On that day, you will, listen to the language, on that day, you will realize, you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And what does he say right before this about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is where? In you. So let's say it like this. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, you are in me, I am in you, and the Spirit is in you. Do do you hear this? Perichoresis? I am in the Father, you are in me, I am in you, the Spirit's in you. Um, this is amazing. Verse 18. Let me, let me just point this out real quick. In verse 18, it says, um, uh, The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he li- lives right here. He lives with you and in you. The word with, do you know what the word is right there? Just taught this. Face to face, pros, same word that John uses in John 1. This says, in the beginning, the word was with God. That's the same word that John uses here when he talks about our relationship with the Spirit, by the way, in John 14. Are y'all good? Y'all good? So, not really. That's okay. <laughs> I'm just playing. So what is he saying? That the Holy Spirit, do you hear this language though? On that day, you will realize you will realize, and then he says presently, that I am presently in my Father, that you are in me, and I am in you, and the Spirit is presently in you. It's not what we thought. We thought all that stuff was initiated at the cross. All that stuff was awakened at the cross. So, so what I'm teaching right now is orthodox. Y'all, if, if y'all, y'all, y'all don't know how much time I put into this stuff on purpose, there's a reason why I read a thousand verses to you every Sunday. And it's so that when you leave hearing something that's orthodox and completely against modern Western evangelical money-raising evangelical Christianity, okay, when you leave and it goes completely against that, at least you know if you're going to go against that, you've got to walk yourself through a thousand different verses that say otherwise. That's exactly why I use so many verses on a Sunday, okay? Just so y'all know. You and I, you and I and everything was created in God. Nothing exists apart from God. That's what John 1 says. But all exists within, through, and for God. That's Colossians 1. But for humanity... There is another level of oneness that we have that is complete in the Son that nothing else in existence has. A a lion was created by God just as much as you and I were created by God. But a lion doesn't share in what we share in with God. Y'all with me? So when Adam and Eve take a bite of a piece of fruit, they're essentially saying we want to be like every other animal in all of creation rather than unlike every other animal but like God in all of creation, the tree of life. And it happens. And they submit themselves to what? Athanasius says corruptibility. They took what was incorruptible and made it corruptible. 
Okay? This is the famous Pharaoh. So Athanasius says, So what was God to do? This is one of the most famous sayings outside of the Bible in Christian history. What was God to do? Let me just read it to you. Y'all got time? It's 1130. It's 11:30. Hang with me. It was unworthy, St. Athanasius. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit of wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. Okay? As then the creatures whom he had created were on the road to ruin, what then was God to do with them? What was God being good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use having made them at all in the beginning? Surely it would have been better, this is what St. Athanasius says, surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. They've done something that God is incapable of affecting. So, it was impossible that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself. St. Athanasius, 352 A.D. He said, what was God to do? Watching his own creation on the road to ruin, not on the road to separation, Not on the road to separation, on the road to ruin by way of living separated without actually being separated. This is what he says in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, he says, the whole world is mine, but you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests. Let me, this is what Ephesians 1, 4 says in the Passion Translation, and I'm done for the verses. He chose us to be his very own, joining us to himself even before he laid the foundation. Sometimes, sometimes the word laid the foundation is the Greek word kataboles, kataboles in the Greek. And that word is, has two meanings. It's the foundation and it is also a fall. So let's say it like this. He chose us to be his very own, joining us to himself even before the fall of the universe. Because of his great love, he ordained us so that we would be seen as holy in his eyes with an unstained innocence. He chose us before he created. What does this say? The Son is the eternal word of God. Amen? The Son is the eternal decree of humanity's destiny. The Son is the at one of God and man. This is what Karl Barth said. Jesus is very God and very man, not half God and half man, fully God and fully man at one. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal word of God. 
What is the eternal word? The eternal word or the eternal decree of God is our destiny. So, this is humanity created in the image and likeness of God, okay? Jesus, and according to Paul, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. So, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Not 200%, but he's 100% man, 100% God, and 100% Jesus. So for Jesus, here's how the math works out. 100 plus 100 equals 100. Jesus is fully man and fully God. Man and God are one in Jesus. Jesus is one being where two realities reside at one within. You ready? Where do we find the, the identity of mankind? If you want to know what mankind was designed to be like, who do you look at? Jesus. If you want to know who God is or what God looks like, who do you look toward? Jesus. You look to Jesus to see the fullness of God, and you look to Jesus to see the fullness of you and I. So Jesus is the eternal word of God. What word? The word that God and man would forever be together in the spin of perichoresis by way of Jesus, not you and I. This is, this is huge. So Jesus is coming to the cross to fulfill. I'm, I'm going to use some big scholarly language. So y'all just hang with me. You might get it on the way home. Jesus comes to the cross to fulfill the decree that was made before anything was created. Jesus is not God throwing his hands up and saying, Oh my Lord, they've lost their mind. What are we going to do? Before creation, the eternal God saw our missteps, met them, and answered them in the Son, and still created it was not a surprise to God. It was not a surprise to God that you and I had a past. It was not a surprise to God that you and I did something that messed us up. It was not a surprise that Adam and Eve ate a bite of the piece of fr- uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. None of that was a surprise. All of that was met and answered before the foundation of the earth, and he still created. Why? Because the answer was always there, and it was Jesus. This is what Peter says, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says, which lately I've been doing a lot of study on the book of Hebrews, and I'm actually moving back towards, I think Paul might have actually written Hebrews. But anyway, anyway, um, St. Athanasius actually quotes Paul in writing Hebrews, so that's a huge um, piece anyway. But in Hebrews, okay, and Peter, in his writings, both say that Jesus was the lamb that was crucified when? Before the foundation of the world. How does that work? What they're saying is, there was a decree that went forth by way of grace before the creation of the cosmos, and you and I, that Jesus entered into time to fulfill. Jesus was not God saying, my Lord, what are we going to do? Jesus, go take care of this. I have got blood on my hand. I am ready to smack somebody for everything that they've done. And Jesus says, stop! Beat me instead! It's 
It's the kindness of God that leads me into God. I've got lightning on my mind. See that? No, that's Zeus. And it's a God in the Greek system of gods that by way of Platonism, the Western church has bought into. We see God as a God with lightning bolts. Nope, that's Zeus because you believe in Plato. But this God, when man had started down the road, see, for Athanasius, I want, I, please hear me. I'm, Holy Spirit, help me in teaching this right now. When you and I fail, the, the issue was never separation or being apart or being united. It was never our placement in, in terms of reality. It was absolutely in terms of how we saw things. But in terms of reality, it was never about, my Lord, they've stepped outside of the spin. How are we going to go get them and bring them back in? No, it was never about that. It was that you and I, let us make mankind in our image and likeness, okay? So our, I'm going to teach you something very deep. Our identity, our identity is image and likeness of God. When we took a step and then another step, and then another step away from image and likeness of God. There was not steps of separation. It was steps of corruptibility. If we live in the identity we're designed for, God is eternal. Right? Y'all with me? God is eternal. God doesn't die. But we take steps away from our image and likeness and by that, we start to fade. We start to perish. Not because of our separation, but because we've started living in something that we are not, which is by way a lie. By the way, a lie, which is, by the way, death, ultimately. So, Jesus enters the picture. This has already been met. Jesus enters the picture, and he sees two things wrong with humanity. Number one, they see God as the bloodthirsty deity that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other religious people teach. So number one, first and foremost, we've got to fix how they view God. Number two, because we've got to fix how they view God and they're made in the image of that God that they see, we've got to fix how they see themselves. And number three, we've got to wake them up to the spin that they've been in since Genesis 1 and 2 that they have lived stirring around thinking that they were not in. That's what Paul said, Galatians 1, Colossians 1, you were once enemies and alienated with God in your mind, right? So what Jesus does is he steps in as the word, as the decree, and he initiates the fullness of the covenant that was released before the foundations of the earth by grace. Y'all with me? Y'all good? Bryson, you good? <laughs> um, I wish I had a cool shirt like that. If I wore cool clothes like that, I feel just, just I mean, I appreciate it, dude. I appreciate it. Um, Jesus' incarnation, ready, was not God's response primarily to our sin. Jesus' incarnation was God's fulfillment of his original decree and dream for us, which also dealt with our sin. Y'all with me? I'm almost done. I'm, I'm at the end. 
Yeah, I'm at the end. Okay? Jesus was not God's response to our sin. Jesus was God's fulfillment of his original desire, which also dealt with our sin. This, this is where we start to polarize theologies and philosophies. If Jesus was the father punishing our sin by killing his kid rather than his kids, which is you and I, the father is a punisher. And Jesus is a really great, awesome brother, right? If Jesus was God's fulfillment of his original desire to have us in the circle relationship forever by ending our delusional ideas of works, right? Then God and Jesus are the same thing. Here we go, here we go. So let me say this one time. If Jesus was the father punishing our sin by killing his kid rather than killing you and I, that makes the father a punisher, which is fine. Here's the issue. Jesus is then a really awesome brother, which is also fine. But here's the problem. What we typically believe about God contradicts Trinitarian theology. The Trinity is defined as one. You no longer have a Trinity if the Father's nature differs from the Son's nature. What is the Trinity? Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, or one in three. If the Son is one way and the Father is another way, and the Father has one nature and the Son has one nature and the Spirit has one nature, you no longer have the Trinity in one. You have three different gods. You can't believe the Trinity and believe the Father is different than the Son at the same time. The, the West believes that the Father punished sin by killing Jesus and turning his back on Jesus at the cross. There's a lot of, pro there's a lot of problems with that. Number one, Colossians, Paul says that God's fullness was dwelling in Christ at the cross. How is God turning away from something that he's in? Anyway, that just felt good. Yet Jesus is just as much God as the Father, who is just as much God as the Father. Jesus didn't punish sin. He received sin and faced it head on, declaring our forgiveness the whole way on our behalf. So you have a father who needs to punish, and you have a son who's not only not punishing, he's taking it in on himself, right, and declaring forgiveness the whole way. Father, forgive them, they don't know, is very different than a father who needs blood. I know this makes people uncomfortable, but I mean, like, let me, let me ask you this. I, I, just to use the, the, the parable that I've been using the past few weeks, the woman caught in the act of adultery, okay? Most scholars believe the woman caught in the act of adultery was a temple prostitute. Back then, the temple had prostitutes. The temple today still has prostitutes. They're just not women um, sometimes. But anyway, um, that was a joke. That was a shot. I, Lord, forgive me for that. I didn't mean to do that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that. Um, so y'all forgive me. But the prostitute caught in the act of adultery, was a temple probably prostitute, and she was probably sleeping with a Pharisee leader, which is how the Pharisees knew what was going on. So that's what most scholars believe. The woman caught in the act of adultery is dragged out. Now here's the problem. You know what the law says in the Old Testament? The law says the woman is to be stoned to death, not the man. 
Moses said, but I, okay. So the woman's dragged out into the, uh, into the ground, she's thrown on the ground. All the people are gathering around to do what the law said, stone her. That's exactly what the law says. You go back in the Old Testament, they're keeping the law to a T. They raise the stones up. Jesus walks up and says, hey, if y'all got to do this, amazing, you've got to do this. But, but, the one who does it, the one who does it, you need to make sure that you've never sinned. Now, just to help you, the law doesn't say that. If you go to the Old Testament, it does not say the ones who are guiltless stone the woman. It just says to stone the woman. Jesus is going against the, everything at this point. By Jesus not stoning this woman, he had to go against the law. I'm about to show you something that's bad to the bone. The woman's thrown out. Jesus, they all walk away. Jesus gets down. Now, I want to ask, here's why I want to say this. If that's the father in the story rather than Jesus, does the woman leave with her life? If, if, if that story was placed somewhere else, and instead of Jesus, it's the father with that woman caught in the act of adultery. By what you think about the father subconsciously, does that woman walk away alive? If you're being honest, and if most of the West is being honest, we probably would not believe she'd walk away alive because is God not the one that gave them the law that said to stone her in the first place? I'll teach that another day. Jesus, who is fully God gets down on her level and says, go and sin no more, absolutely. First says, I don't condemn you. She hadn't gone to a temple. This is, Jesus hadn't died yet. She hasn't gone to a temple to offer a sacrifice, to offer an offering, to, uh, to offer a guilt offering where the, the hands are placed on the goat and the scapegoat is left. None of that has taken place, yet Jesus gets down on her level and says, I, who is Jesus? God, do not condemn you, and by way of you not being condemned anymore, now you have the freedom to go and sin no more. And we've tried to tell people, go and sin no more without going through the process of what it means to not be condemned anymore because we think whether or not we're condemned hinges on what we do. And Jesus met that woman in the act of adultery and said, I don't condemn you, now go sin no more. We tell people, go sin no more and you won't be condemned. And that gospel is drastically different. That's saying you're right here and everything you do in your life, as long as it's good, as long as it's full, will find your way back by the skin of your teeth back into the spin. And Jesus comes with a gospel that says, you never left this spin and I'm here to prove it. I, I, I feel like I got electricity just flowing through me right now, so it just feels great. <clears throat> Last page, three more notes. On this basis alone, any theology must be rejected if it is built on a God that has different natures. If you don't start, if your starting point 
isn't perichoresis. Everything else is futile. It doesn't matter if you believe the right thing about the cross. It doesn't matter if you've read the Bible a million times in your life. It doesn't matter if you believe the right thing about resurrection. It doesn't matter if you believe the right thing about heaven or hell or salvation. If you don't start at the foundation with perichoresis and also start at the foundation with you being created in, through, and for perichoresis, if you don't start there, the rest of it's futile. You might as well stop. Until you get convinced of this, you don't need to go anywhere else. Nowhere else. You don't need to figure out what it means for sin to enter the world or where people are born into or what baptism means or what salvation means. or what. You don't need to know any of that stuff until you get convinced that God exists in perichoresis. Until you get convinced that when Philip goes to Jesus at the end, Philip goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you'll just show us the Father, everything will be okay. Everything will make sense. If you'll let us see the Father, we'll believe everything that you've had to say. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have I been with you and you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What we have to now have the guts to say to the world around us, you ready? is if you've seen me, you've seen the Son. Well, bro, not if you've seen me, you've seen a sinner saved by grace, by God. No, if you've seen me, you've seen the Son. You were a sinner saved by grace for about one second. You know what I'm saying? You were a sinner saved by grace for about one second. And now you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You keep walking around. This is why, the, Lord, 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 Lord. This is why in the King James, when they're translating Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The translators of the King James Bible say, that, nope, that can't be right. They take out a pen. They have it in no, none of the Greek translations. They take out a pen and they say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. If you open up any of the Greek translations, do you know what that verse says? Paul says in the original Greek, the handwriting that he used, the language that he used, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Religion will let you believe that there's no condemnation over you as long as you act right, right? Rather than what Jesus decreed, which is there's no condemnation over your life. Now you know how to act. It's not you act right and then you'll be decreed righteous. It's you're decreed righteous before you ever took a breath. Now you know how to act. It's, it is dumb for us to tell an apple tree to produce apples without us first taking the seed and putting the seed in the ground. Dumb, but that's what we've done. We've tried to take a bunch of people who don't have a clue who they are, who don't have a clue who Jesus is. We've tried to tell a bunch of people who don't know anything about their identity or God's to act right. That's impossible. You cannot act right if you don't know who you are. You can try and you can try. And so here's what happens. Religion has transitioned from something that is real to something that is a mask because you can't act right without knowing who you really are. But religion will make you stop short of knowing who you really are because that's dangerous territory right there. That is dangerous, threatening territory right here. Perichoresis threatens half of what we believe in the West. So instead of making the journey to figuring out what is the way, the truth, and the life, 
Hello. Instead, we've created a new way, truth, and the life, and we've said if you act and you do and you give and you serve and you do this, then you'll find your way and you'll find your truth and you'll find the life. And we wonder why the culture around us is going to Hades. The culture around us is going to Hades, not because you and I are failing to act right. It's because you and I don't know who we are. But if we could wake up to who we really are in Christ Jesus, do you know what it would do? It would give the world around us permission to wake up to who they are in Christ Jesus. He's the firstborn among many brethren. (laughs) His resurrection, Paul says, is our resurrection. His resurrection is what gave permission for us to be resurrected. Our resurrection is what gives permission to those around us to be resurrected. The, the, way, we, the way we evangelize the globe is not by telling them to act right or they're going to burn. The way we evangelize the globe is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. And the way we evangelize the globe is by us being convinced of who we are first. And when they look at us and they see us living in such a spin that Paul calls life to the full, Jesus calls life to the full. When we live in that spin, suddenly they're going to look around at their life with their anxiety and their depression and their wars and their missiles and their atomic bombs and their elections and their congresses and their abortions and their uh, homosexuality. They're going to look at all of that stuff and say, I was made for a spin that I cannot find anywhere else except wherever they found it. Where did you find that spin? And our life becomes the progenitor of everybody else finding life. But you can't give somebody else what you don't have. You cannot evangelize other people until you let the gospel of perichoresis evangelize you. That I'm, I'm, telling, I'm about to lay hands on every one of y'all in this room. You know what I'm saying? I feel feel this in my guts. This is what I've been studying for the past year. Is this right here? Perichoresis. This is where everything you want, you want at peace from your anxiety. All you need to do is know that you are in the spin of perichoresis where guess what? Guess what doesn't exist in this spin? All things exist in him, for him, and through him. Nothing exists apart from him that has existed. That's what John says. Jesus didn't create anxiety. Jesus didn't create depression. Jesus didn't create abortion. Jesus didn't create any of that stuff. That, that None of that found its way in here. So what is it? If everything that exists exists in God, and something is a quote-unquote reality in our world that you can't find in God, I said this a couple weeks ago, what is it? It's a lie. It's not real. It doesn't exist. You see what I'm saying? So, and I'm not, I'm not, and I don't say that, I like, uh, y'all, I want you to hear my heart. Some of y'all are going to take that and be like, oh my Lord, he don't think anxiety is real. No, I, but I believe if you could get convinced of who you really are and the value that is over your life, anxiety would start to fall away. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I don't sympathize. I am trying to say I don't sympathize if, if we have failed to make the journey into this. Because I don't believe you can find your way into perichoresis. I do not believe you can find your way into perichoresis and still carry something like that. I don't. I don't. 
And it is imperative. I've seen pastors. I've seen friends. I've seen, do you know how many pastors that I have gotten news of that have committed suicide lately? Friends. I, mean, this, I, was, I, was, so, I was angry this week. No, just an, another friend, another somebody I knew that a lot of you know. And I, thank God, here's the good news. Thank God that he is right now before Jesus and Jesus is making known the fullness of the gospel in front of him right now. Praise God. But th- the urgency for us to get the good news of not religion, of life to people around us, I cannot overstate. I cannot overstate. We need to lay down this game of telling people what they want to hear and instead tell people what they need to hear. Like, you don't need to know what your assignment is until you know who you really are. And if you know who you really are, guess what you'll care less about? Your assignment. Here's my assignment, the feet of Jesus. Whatever else I do after that flows from the feet of Jesus. But if I'm not careful, I'll find my assignment, my spin, and I'll work my entire life on being somebody that I already am. Or I could get convinced of who I am by way of looking at Jesus and seeing who he is, fully God, fully man. I could get convinced of who I am, and guess what? No matter what I do, if I'm bagging groceries, if I'm cutting yards, if I'm being a dad, or if I'm being a pastor, I'm still fulfilled in all of it. Luckily, luckily, the problems that we have is our view of God. Luckily, the answer is simply fixing our view of God. Um, let, me, let me read this last verse and I'll be done. Matt, come up here. Um, I meant to call you up here earlier, but anyway, last part. Last part. I won't tell you where I'm going. So you'll pay attention, not turn there. All right. I want you to hear this. In the past, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, let me just just throw this out there. The writer of Hebrews is calling the days that he's living in the last days. In these days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe there's the language again listen the son is the radiance of god's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs okay his ascension you ready for this last part God, the Father. (laughs) Father, on his throne, 
is some handrails. Y'all, I didn't take art, so I mean, y'all, just chill with me for a minute. Okay, there's his throne. Footstool. Awesome. Okay, stool for his feet. All right, awesome. There's the Father. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. The Son is the radiance of glory. Um, After he had provided purification for sins... Okay? After he had provided purification from sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Here's Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is obviously just a very kindergarten thing because the perichoresis is the whole thing. All right, just, you know, just visualize this with me for a second. He's at the right hand of the Father, okay, together, face-to-face again at the right hand. The right hand has to do with authority, okay? Right hand, authority, scripture. Ready? Who, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Son of God. Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. Amen? Jesus is where God and man are at one. And Jesus, right now, is at the right hand of the Father. You ready? Where are you and I? Say like this. Paul says like this. I'm trying to make, I'm making this way too easy on y'all. He has seated us in heavenly places. Jesus is where God and man are at one. His ascension to the right hand of the Father is our ascension to the right hand of the Father. When Jesus took his rightful place, you and I retook our rightful place. If we're seated with the Father in heavenly places at the right hand with Jesus, why are we living like we're a bunch of lower than slaves? And why do we live like we're got, we got to live our whole life working our way up, working our way up, working our way up, and finally when we get to the gates, for some reason Peter's there. We don't know why Peter's just always at the gates. I don't know who assigned him that role, but he's just there. So when Peter, when you get up to the gates, Peter's going to say, all right, Josh, let me, this is what we believe. Josh, let's see. Okay, went to church. Awesome. Like read his Bible. Read, Dear Lord, you said that? My Lord. Strike one. Go there. Strike two. All right. Two strikes. You're in, buddy. Have fun. See, that, that right? That, this, is, this is what we believe. This is what we believe. You're you're seated at the right hand of the Father. That's why Jesus says we have eternal life in him, and yet you and I are still going to die. But we're not going to die. We're going to transition into the fullness of the relationship that you and I have right now. Is this, this too much? This too much? This too much. You'll get it one day. When you're older, you'll get it. This is, this is everything. I, I, could te- I might teach this for the next month. I don't know. But <laughs> I'm just playing. Maybe. But th- 
this is exactly, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus came to do. Fix our view of the Father, fix our view of the Spirit, thus fix our view of ourselves in Jesus. Jesus could have said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen yourself. All right, I know I see your brain's frying. All right, let's pray. Y'all bow your heads, y'all bow your heads. I had a vision as your eyes are closed. I had a vision last week, and this is why I teach the way I do. I had a vision last week, and the Lord told me every time I open my mouth, and it's not just me, this applies to everybody, but this is what the Lord told me. Every time I open my mouth, I'm preaching to three audiences and teaching to three audiences. Number one, the people in our church. Number one, the people in our church. Number two, is the people that kind of don't live here. They catch this from afar. They, they live in different states, different countries, but they're tracking with us. That's number two. But this is it. the third group that the Lord told me every time I open my mouth, every single time I'm preaching to this group are kids that haven't even been born yet, are people that haven't even awakened yet. Are some of our kids like my daughter and Sue and Evie and all these other kids that are around here? Every time I open my, I, I've had a vision since I, the reason I handwrite all of my sermons, everything I do I handwrite, and the reason is is I had a revelation before we started this church of people hundreds and hundreds, my family hundreds and hundreds of years down the line, my great 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 grandkids stumbling upon some of this stuff that the Lord's doing and opening it up and it becoming a well of life. It becoming permission for them to do what is going to probably be extremely restricted by religion at that point. Me and Matt joke about this a lot on Tuesdays, but I feel like sometimes we, all we do is just open a can of worms. I, the Lord corrected me on that this week. The Lord corrected me on that this week. What we're doing, and I use that language in worship, every single time we get into some of this stuff, we're opening up ancient streams. Ancient streams. That's the language the Lord's been giving me lately. You're not opening a can of worms. The only time a language of can of worms applies is if you're teaching something that is completely unorthodox. And every single thing the Lord has been walking us through lately is 100% orthodox. It's exactly why the early church fathers were willing to be beheaded, pulled apart by horses, boiled in oil. They were doing that because they were so convinced of a good news that they knew them giving their lives for the good news would do nothing but unleash another level of life for everyone else. It was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. What joy? You finally realizing that you've been in a spin of perichoresis, of mutual indwelling, of mutual self-giving your entire life, but the joy set before him that he endured the cross on behalf of was you finally and I finally realizing the spin that we're in.
So Father, I pray that that would happen in us this week. I know we've got so, we got so many people out of town, just happens to be out of town today. So many of our normal people are out of town today. I know a lot of you are watching this, but I, I pray even right now, whether it be in the mountains of North Carolina, the mountains of West Virginia, um, some people are watching this from, uh, I think, Chicago. Um, some people are watching this from Charlotte, just some of our family. I pray wherever you're listening to this right now, that the Holy Spirit would begin right now to just invade your world and make known the spin. It's in your name. Amen. Let me mention this real quick and then we'll go. God existing in Trinity means God is 100% self-giving. You know what I'm saying? So if, so if Father, Son, and Spirit are operating in a mutual indwelling, that means that Father, Son, and Spirit are 100% self-giving, not self-seeking. So the Father's joy and Jesus's joy that was set before him and the Holy Spirit's joy is not what you can give because God is not self-seeking. God's joy is in the, the fullness of what you're willing to receive. So this week, I want you just in the secret place, I want you to get in the secret place and instead of feeling like you've got to give God something, I want you to dare to do what God really wants you to do, which is receive. He loves it when you sing but he really loves it when you let him sing.